listening to the Hooked on Learning Podcast, where we discuss all things related to continuous improvement. And now to your host, Jesse Marka. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Hooked on Learning. Today's episode is going to focus on risk management, but it's not your average risk management class because this risk management class is going to go a little bit deeper than previous risk management classes that you may have been to or that we may have done internally. So this risk management class is titled The Art of Risk Management, and it focuses on critical decision-making through a review of risk management and its application in the contemporary fire service, meaning here and today. So if you picture an art gallery, and if you if you imagine yourself walking through this art gallery and looking at different pieces of art, for the purpose of this presentation, that art is going to be a case study. And those case studies are going to be used to talk about what lies beneath the surface. So not the proximate cause of whatever um, issue or incident we're going to talk about, but the root cause. What is actually responsible for that accident? A good case study to use to, to kind of paint a picture on this one would be the Titanic. So everybody knows the story of the Titanic, and everybody knows why the Titanic sank, right? The Titanic sank because it hit an iceberg. That is correct. It is at least partially correct. That is what caused the iceberg to collapse, or what caused the ship to sink from the surface, literally and figuratively. This ship hit an iceberg. But if you were to look a little bit deeper, there was a study that was done actually in 1998 by a professor emeritus from the University of Minnesota, Rochester, and then that was then published 10 years later, and it talked about the ship being inherently flawed by the materials and by the design. So the, sh- the steel that was used at the time was 10 times more brittle than steel today. Welding technology was also uh, very limited, which caused them to use over 3 million rivets to hold the ship together. So again, not as strong as a ship that would be made today. Another reason would be the design of the ship. It was inherently flawed. Uh, compartments that were meant to be watertight were not actually watertight. And the ship hitting an iceberg wasn't the only thing that caused it to sink. It was the fact that it was made with materials that were not up to snuff. And the design was not what it should have been. So that gives you just a little bit of a lead-in, a teaser, if you will, about what we're going to talk about today as it relates to the art of risk management and critical decision-making. So this presentation is is going to focus on the work of a couple of people. One is Gordon Graham. Gordon Graham is a nationally renowned speaker. He's the president of Lexapol. He's a retired California highway patrolman, and he's the co-founder of firefightercloscalls.com. So he does have some experience in the fire service And he is a very successful attorney on top of that. When he goes around the country speaking, he likes to talk about something called Rickover's Rules. So Rickover's Rules are from Admiral Hyman Rickover. Now, Admiral George uh, Hyman George Rickover was a United States Navy admiral who directed the original development of naval nuclear propulsion and controlled its operations for over three decades as the director of naval reactors. And during that time, uh, Admiral Rickover really enjoyed and really believed in being part of 
the selection process for the folks that were going to work in the nuclear navy. And some estimates have placed him in over 14,000 interviews. That is a staggering number. And during that time, Admiral Rickover looked for people who um, displayed some really core traits. And those traits were ownership, responsibility, attention to detail, priorities, knowing what's going on, hard work, checking up, and facing the facts. And one of the things that Admiral Rickover is most famous for is indeed what is now referred to as Rickover's Rules. So he had seven rules that he used to guide the mission of the nuclear Navy. And those rules are what we're going to focus on for the rest of the class today. So we're going to talk about each rule. We're going to correlate it back to the fire service. We're going to have fun while we're doing it. And we're going to do it in a very timely fashion. So let's jump right in. Rule number one, you must have a rising standard of quality over time and well beyond what is required by any minimum standard. Makes sense, right? So the fire service, let's think about that for a second. Driver's training. That is a high-risk, high-frequency operation. Um, In fact, it's probably the most high-risk, high-frequency operation that we deal with um, as fire and EMS providers. Because while each run may be different, each run requires us to leave the station and drive to and from the incident. So... Driver's training, one would expect you to be uh, pretty well trained to drive a uh, 60,000 or more than that, 60,000 pounds or more vehicle. So, state of Michigan says if you're going to drive a vehicle that weighs more than 26,000 pounds, you will have as a minimum a Class B commercial driver's license with all of the appropriate endorsements, uh, air brakes, tank endorsements, so you can understand Uh, how the weight may shift in a tank with or without ballast as you're driving. And that course is typically 40 to 80 hours long. It has a classroom portion, and then it has a driving uh, portion as well. Very well regulated. And then you have the fire service. Uh, The fire service has a a class for people, and that class is 6 to 8 hours long. And it technically does have a driving portion that is 6 to 8 minutes long. So you can see the difference there. Uh, We do not have a standard that is well above the minimum standard. We have a standard in the fire service that is well below the minimum standard. And beyond that, we have not um, continuously raised the bar on that standard. We've left it exactly where it was when it first went into place. So again, a fully loaded cement truck by my limited research, weighs approximately 60,000 pounds. It has a single cab, meaning one person is going to drive it. And I'm guessing the person that drives that cement truck today is probably going to drive the cement truck tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next several weeks and the next several months and the next several years. That truck is slow. It cannot go through red lights. It cannot blow through stop signs, which we shouldn't be either. But you get the idea. No lights and sirens. It is going to discretionary time events And I I don't believe that the average cement truck driver gets this sudden rush of adrenaline when he pulls down the street and sees a freshly formed uh, new patio just waiting for the concrete. My guess is their adrenaline is pretty in check, and this is a run-of-the-mill routine operation for them. Conversely, we take a at least 60,000-pound, if not much more, tower truck, and uh, this tower truck can be 40 feet in length, 
and we are driving lights and sirens. We're going to something where our adrenaline is pumping through our veins, right? And uh, you probably weren't driving that truck the shift before. You probably won't be driving the truck the shift after, and you may not have driven it for the first 18 or 20 hours of your current shift, and now you're taking it on this incident with not just yourself, but other people in the cab as well. So um, kind of unacceptable in all honesty that the fire service has allowed that to happen. So how does that happen in the state of Michigan? Well, that would be up to the Michigan Firefighters Training Council. They are the ones who are steering the ship um, on curriculum. They're located within the Bureau of Fire Services underneath the state fire marshal in the Office of Licensing and Regulatory Affairs, or LARA, as it's referred to. So who's on the training council? Well, they have the director for the Office of Firefighter Training, which is another office that has been decimated by budget cuts. They have a representative from the Michigan Fire Chiefs Association, the Bureau of Fire Services, the Michigan Fire Service Instructors Association, the Michigan Professional Firefighters Union, the Michigan State Firemen's Association, and then the Michigan Municipal League and the Michigan Township Association share a spot on that as well. So just take a second, think of uh, the agenda of each one of those organizations and how it may impact uh, certification and licensure in the state of Michigan as it relates to firefighter training specifically. And uh, just, you know, use your imagination and think of why do we not have a standing or a rising standard over time that is well above the minimum standard. Um, so my OSHA is also important. My OSHA uh, Public Act 74 basically uh, dictates or guides our fire department in terms of what is required for training. So Myosha Part 74 has a couple of statements that we're going to cover very quickly. Uh, section 2, an employer shall prepare and maintain a statement or written policy which establishes its basic organizational structure and which establishes the type, amount, and frequency of training to be provided to fire service personnel. The organizational statement shall be available for inspection. So it's basically saying it's up to you. You tell us what your training plan is, and then you hold yourself to that standard, and you make sure that it's available for our inspection should we arrive uh, at your location and ask to see that. The other part that's really interesting in MIOSHA is Rule 7411, Section 1. An employer shall comply with all of the following requirements. Listen closely. Provide training to an employee commensurate with the duties and functions that the employee is expected to perform. The training shall be provided before the employee is permitted to perform the emergency operations. So, what they're telling you is before you work as a firefighter, before you come manpower as a paramedic, you must be training all of those duties that we are expect, expecting you to perform. Vehicle extrication, fire uh, suppression technical rescue, hazardous materials, all of these things. So we will be changing our probationary program in the immediate future. That means more time on 40s. Everybody's dream, more time on 40s. And we're going to um, focus on quality, and we're going to check off most of that probationary manual, all of those core skills, prior to that new employee ever arriving on shift. So, Mosh Part 74, feel free to check it out. Rule number two. People running complex systems should be highly capable. So best example for this one would be Captain Sullenberger. So I'm going to play some audio real time of Captain Sullenberger 
Everybody has seen this video before. It is a computer-generated animation that is synced up real-time to what unfolded that day in New York City uh, and ultimately on the Hudson River. So I'm going to play this and think about what would happen if his airline, if Captain Sullenberger's airline, hired people from the neck down and said, we don't need you to think here. We just need you to get the plane from this gate to that gate. Okay, we're not looking for you to revolutionize air travel or passenger safety. So again, same thing in the fire service. We're not hiring people from the neck down. We are hiring people that should be um, highly capable because the work we do is highly uh, complex and highly challenging. So here is that audio. Sector 1549 Cactus 1549, it's Parker to contact on maintain 1500. You tell me if you sound stupid. Cactus 1549, turn left heading 270. Cactus 1539, hit first, turn left heading up 220. Okay, uh, you need to return to LaGuardia. Turn left heading up 220. Stop your departures, got emergency returning. It's 1529, he, uh, bird strike, he lost all engine, he lost the thrust in the engines, he's returning immediately. Cactus 1529, which engines? He lost thrust in both engines, he said. Got it. Cactus 1529, we can get it, Steve. Do you want to try to land runway 13? We're unable. We may end up in the Hudson. All right, Cactus 1549, it's going to be left traffic to runway 31. Unable. Okay, what do you need to land? Do you want to try to go to Teterboro? Yes. Teterboro, uh, Empire. Actually, LaGuardia departure guy, emergency inbound. Hey, go ahead. Cactus 1529 over the George Washington Bridge wants to go to the airport right now. Going to our airport, check. Does he need assistance? Uh, yes, yeah, it was a bird strike. Can I get him in for uh, runway one? Runway one, that's good. Cactus 1529, turn right 280. Can land runway right. one at Teterboro. We can't do it. Okay, which runway would you like at Teterboro? We're going to be the I'm sorry, say again, Cactus. Cactus 1549, radar contact is lost. You also got Newark Airport up at 2 o'clock in about 7 miles. Eagle 54718, turn left thing 210. 210-2718. So what you just heard is a highly capable person running a highly complex system. Captain Sullenberger and the rest of his crew, which shouldn't go unnoticed as well, their actions absolutely uh, resulted in the saving of every human life aboard their aircraft that day. But their entire careers, all of their work as a professional was judged in a matter of minutes didn't matter how long they'd been flying or how long they'd been a member of that crew. Everything they did resulted in the most successful outcome they could have had. And it wasn't the safe choice. It was the smart choice. And they continued to fly the plane, and they flew it well. And that's the, the type of person that we need to look for in our industry, in the fire service. We need people who can fly the plane and fly it well. And that will allow us to maintain that competitive advantage and to continuously evolve to meet the challenges not only of today, but also of tomorrow. So let's move on to rule number three. Supervisors have to face bad news when it comes and take problems to a level high enough to fix those problems. Kind of sounds like common sense, but when you take an honest look at tragedies in any aspect of public safety operations, 
from the lawsuits to the injuries, deaths, embarrassments, internal investigations, and even the rare criminal filing against our own personnel, so many of these come down to supervisors not acting like supervisors, and that's what Gordon Graham focuses on. And the primary mission of a supervisor is systems implementation. So if we have systems and we are not implementing them, then what good are they? And uh, Director Mutchler talked about policy absent inspection is noncompliance. And what it's saying is what good is having it if nobody is actually paying attention to it? So that is what this uh, means. And when bad news comes, because it will Think of vehicle maintenance, for example. Things can and do go wrong. But when they do go wrong, we must be able to take those problems to the appropriate level to get those problems fixed. Rule number four, you must have a healthy respect for the dangers and risks of your particular job. So fire and EMS is a dangerous job. We cannot eliminate all of the risk. And again, Look inside your turnout code. It will tell you that. It will tell you that fire and rescue operations are an ultra-hazardous, unavoidably dangerous occupation and that no amount of uh, protective clothing can replace appropriate training. So we need to be able to recognize the risks we face and prioritize them in terms of frequency, severity, potential of uh, occurrence, and the time to think, meaning discretionary time or non-discretionary time. Then we have to mobilize and act to prevent the problem from occurring. Or once the problem has occurred, so this is a threat, right? Just like crew resource management, we need to remember uh, the proper steps so we don't create errors because human error is what leads to um, catastrophe many times. So we do this through recognized prime decision-making, RPM, recognize, prioritize, mobilize. We recognize patterns and then we connect the dots and, uh, and we use that to develop pathways in our brain to make the appropriate decision at the appropriate time. And rule number five follows up on that and reaffirms that. Rule number five is that training must be constant and training must be rigorous. Gordon Graham says every day must be a training day. We must focus on the tasks in every job description that have the highest probability of causing us grief. These are the high-risk, low-frequency, non-discretionary time events. That's why we focus on things like the importance of 17 seconds and window bales. And window bales with reduced visibility, window bales with, um, with high heat under live fire conditions. That's why we do uh, hose line entry and egress with zero visibility as well. That's why we focus and stress on the little things like door control and um, all of those things because training must be constant. It must be rigorous because when bad things happen, you fall back on your habits and your habits are developed during effective training. Moving along, rule number six, you must have a robust audit system in place to assure what you say you are doing is in fact what you are doing. Now we can think of our return to spontaneous circulation and the success we've had with that once we hit the number we want, doesn't make us good. Maintaining that number and improving that number is what makes us great. So uh, we have a number of ways to have that audit system in place. One of the audit systems we have in place, and one of the things we need to continuously monitor that we're uh, 
in compliance with is our policy and procedure manual or operations manual. We also have to monitor our training records and compliance in terms of uh, meeting industry accepted benchmarks, uh, performance evaluations, after action reviews, quality assurance, all of these lead to data-driven information, and that is what we're talking about here, a robust audit system, and I will commend every single person um, involved with our department, and I'll commend everybody involved with, uh, with Metro Airport as well. Both organizations absolutely embrace that idea because both organizations are full of professionals who want to do the best they possibly can, and that is so important in this field because we are providing a service uh, not to ourselves, but to the general public. And if we don't take care of our ourselves and our skill sets and we're not continuously monitoring the operations of our people, then we will fail the people that we are here to serve and protect. Rule number seven, and this is going to get into some case studies. The organization and the members thereof must have the ability and the willingness to learn from the mistakes of the past. That is rule number seven. After action reviews, post-incident analysis, it matters. So we do not turn blind eyes to things that don't go well. In fact, we use a laser focus to figure out exactly what could have gone better and when it should have gone better and how we're going to make it better because that's our goal, to provide the highest level of fire, rescue, and emergency medical services to those who live, work, and play within our community. So we're going to focus on, on uh, six case studies. We're going to do it um, relatively quickly. There's more information on all of these. Should you want uh, more information on them, feel free to talk to me or anybody else um, that, would, that would have uh, the resources for this. A simple Google search would also suffice if you'd like to know more about one of these particular incidents. So as I tell you the story and I give you the examples, I want you to focus on determining the root cause. And Gordon Graham talks about root cause falling under three different areas. It may be one, it may be two, it may be three of these things. Arrogance, this rule does not apply to me. Ignorance, a lack of knowledge regarding the rules. Or complacency, it hasn't happened or it will never happen. So arrogance, ignorance, complacency, all three of those things kill um, in so many different ways. So the first example that we're going to use is the Costa Concordia, a cruise liner. Um, in fact, a very, very, very modern and nice and luxur luxurious cruise, li cruise liner. So this cruise ship, uh, the Costa Concordia was 952 feet in length. It was launched in 2005 and it was wrecked in January of 2012. The uh, cruise ship's captain, Francesco Chitino, uh, was not on the bridge um, in control of the ship when it crashed, and there's a lot of reasons why it may have crashed. Now, from the surface, it looks like they did what? They ran aground. They got in, uh, they basically drove the ship or steered the ship into a reef. So the easy fix would be to identify reefs and make sure we're not around there. However, um, that was a threat. The reef represents a threat. Human error is what caused that ship to do what it did. And uh, Mr. Chitino had some quotes following this. And one of those quotes is that he drives his cruise ship like he drives his Ferrari. So you can imagine there is zero correlation between the two of those things. Um, that would be like driving 
the ladder truck like you drive your motorcycle. It doesn't make sense. It's apples to oranges. So um, during this event, there were uh, many people injured and even worse, killed. 32 people died in that incident. It took several months to remove um, the remains of the people who um, were killed that day. And the captain denies, actually, that he left the luxury liner after it hit a reef. He describes it more as he fell out of the ship and into a lifeboat. So uh, hard to imagine somebody having that kind of luck on a bad luck day. So, but this wasn't bad luck. This was, um, this was a bad person that should never have been in, in charge. It was a problem lying in wait, as Gordon Graham refers to it. Everybody knew who Francesco Chettino was, and they knew he took unnecessary risk versus calculated risk. So Mr. Chettino ended up going to trial uh, for manslaughter and abandoning the ship because a saying like the captain goes down with the ship, it's more than a saying. It's a rule. The captain does not abandon the ship. So with that being said, arrogance was one of the root causes of this. This captain believed he was better than everybody else and uh, therefore could take unnecessary risks. Ignorance was part of it, and so was complacency on the part of the employer to not do something about the person who caused this. The next disaster we're going to talk about is the Spanish rail disaster. So the Spanish rail disaster um, involved the uh, the train conductor, Francesco, Francisco Jose Garzon. And uh, Mr. Garzon said that he got distracted and he meant to be going 80 kilometers an hour, but turns out he was going 190 kilometers per hour. So more than double, basically, um, the posted speed that he was supposed to be traveling at. When he ran, went around the curve, the train derailed and uh, 79 people were killed. So again, what do we do? What's the proximate cause? train was going too fast. How do we fix that? Slow the train down. But what's the root cause? The root cause is that this guy was reckless in everything that he did. Again, he was arrogant. Now, ignorance wasn't a big part of this because people knew that this guy was arrogant and that he took unnecessary risks because he liked to talk about it. He liked to take photos of it and share it. But there was complacency on the part of the employer, right? In terms of allowing that culture to exist and allowing it to continue because, well, he hasn't derailed the train and killed 79 people uh, before, so what's that? what are the odds he's going to do it today? So Mr. Garzon was charged with 79 counts of homicide and numerous offenses of bodily harm committed through professional recklessness. So think about that, professional recklessness. Now, we have something called governmental immunity, so it would be kind of hard um, for one of us to be charged with that through something involving firefighting. But think about the EMS world. There's th there are things like nonfeasance and malfeasance, uh, where you can and will be held accountable for your care or lack thereof. Next one, the Fukushima nuclear crisis. Nuclear crisis. They had a meltdown of a nuclear reactor on the seaward coast of one of the most uh, earthquake-prone regions in the entire world. Earthquakes cause tsunamis. 
Tsunamis are bad for seaward-facing nuclear power plants, as one would imagine. So, as the nuclear reactor melted down, Gordon Graham explained an environment where they flip open a chart, uh, a quick guide, and look at nuclear meltdown, nuclear reactor meltdown, and basically see, oh, we haven't had one of these, so we shouldn't have one of these. And a major crisis ensued, and uh, it took a very, 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 very long time to get control of what was going on there. Next one, Asiana Flight 214. So Asiana Airlines Flight 214, um, inbound to San Francisco Airport. Uh, The plane crashed and killed a number of people on board. Obviously a total loss of the aircraft. And uh, what was the cause of that? Oh, the airplane landed a few feet short, missed its mark, and uh, lost control of the aircraft, snapped in half, started on fire, and that was what caused it. From the surface level, low-hanging fruit, it sure was. Except, again, look deeper, and you'll find that the training program to train new pilots was um, completely insufficient. The crew, the person flying the plane had never landing at the, landed at this air, airport, let alone landed in that aircraft. Um, outside of a simulator. So a lot more research to be done on that one, but um, that one was ignorance and that one was complacency. The Korean ferry tragedy. Now the Korean ferry tragedy occurred in April of 2014, and this one was a tragedy of all tragedies. Uh, There were many, many, many people who were killed, including 299 people on board the ship, most of which were high schoolers. Two rescue divers and five emergency workers um, were killed during that, along with five missing people. So the captain of this, basically they were on a ship that shouldn't have been in service. They underwent a number of illegal renovations. They added two decks on top, causing the ship to be top-heavy. They had a failing steering system uh, that people knew was defective. The third mate ordered the ship to turn. Uh, The turn was too sharp. Due to the failure of the steering system, they continued to turn, tried to correct, and the ship fell over because it was top-heavy. The captain and 14 crew members were all indicted on a number of different charges, including homicide, fleeing, and abandoning the ship in addition to negligence. They were all found guilty. The captain is now serving a life sentence. Um, The chief engineer is serving a 10-year sentence. Uh, And then there are a number of other crew members that are serving 18 months to 12-year sentences. So really bad one. And uh, the captain, again, was nowhere to be found. The captain miraculously fell off the ship as well into a a safety boat uh, just by dumb luck, right? So uh, arrogance, ignorance, and complacency were all part of this recipe. And then we get to a fire service uh, case study here, and that is a Houston Fire Department line of duty death. Uh, where four people were killed in a commercial fire um, back in May of 2013. So this one uh, is more of a cultural issue. From the surface, they went into a building that had been renovated. There was a fire in a concealed space. That caused the demise of the building. That caused a collapse or an ensuing collapse. And uh, members were trapped and ultimately succumbed to their injuries, four of them. But when you take a deeper look, you see there's a cultural issue or was a cultural issue there. And I'm not trying to bag on their organization. But again, their representatives from their organization were the ones that created this in my mind. I told the story about meeting a gentleman at a conference and uh, talking about that, talking with that gentleman about the fire service in general 
and the Detroit Fire Department, and his view is that the Detroit Fire Department is opposite of an aggressive fire department. He described them as an organization based off of the movie Burn that likes to fight fires from the outside. He said you may see some fire uh, being put out by water sprayed from the front lawn, and occasionally you'll see a person on the roof chopping a hole, but the Detroit Fire Department does not do aggressive interior firefighting. He then went on to say that Houston Fire Department does because in each of the 10 years that he's worked there, they've killed somebody uh, in the line of duty. And he then went on to explain that the numbers speak for themselves and that the Houston Fire Department, by nature, is aggressive because they have multiple people paying the price. And now, you know, think about that as it relates to root cause. Arrogance, check. Ignorance, check. Complacency, check. Now, Thankfully, they hired a leader um, by the name of Terry Garrison to be their chief from another organization, from Phoenix Fire Department, who had a much different culture. And he worked throughout his time as the Houston Fire Chief to uh, reverse that culture and to improve their operations. And he did a phenomenal job. And he's since moved on um, to another job back uh, closer to home so he could be close to his family. But these are the things we're talking about. If you don't address the root cause, you will never address the problem. If you can't go back and fix the culture of the Houston Fire Department, then people will continue to die. It doesn't matter if you give them better gear, better equipment, more thermal imaging cameras, newer trucks, more water, or more um, resources in some other capacity. If you don't fix the root cause, if you are a person who focuses on low-hanging fruit, measurable things, then you will never get where you're trying to go. You must be willing and capable to look beneath the surface to find those problems lying in wait, to correct things that may not be as measurable. Culture, right? To make sure you don't end up as the one who is arrogant, ignorant, or complacent. So with that in mind, feel free to to research any one of these incidents. Feel free to share any other incidents or tragedies that have taken place since any of these, and feel free to do more research on on Admiral Rickover. Until then, I thank you for your time, and I so look forward to our next podcast, and I hope you do too. Thank you for listening to the Hooked on Learning Podcast. Until next time, be smart.